Bar Podcast Network presents A Guy, A Bride, and a Bible. Grab your Bible and your person. Mark, he's the guy. Andrea, she's the bride. Open up and read along. Are you having a good time reading ahead of us? No, the one we're skipping. Well, we're shh, we're recording. Don't tell me skip. I didn't know you're already recording. Well, it's fun this way because you're surprised now. Hi everybody, I'm Mark. I'm the guy. You can edit that. I'm not gonna. It's fun. Hi, I'm Andrea, the bride. She's not going ahead. In our reading pa- uh, plan, we um, very strangely, our reading plan left out Isaiah 34. Maybe because it's like incredibly harsh and it's, vivid and it's very gory. Let's just be honest. Yeah. Read that first line you said you saw. It's for the, um, not for the squeamish. She's a medical professional. The Lord's sword is dripping with blood. It is covered with fat. It drips with the blood of young rams and goats and is covered with the fat of rams' kidneys. That sounds awesome for a Halloween. slaughter. It's a Halloween read right there, y'all. Um, he was angry and he <clears throat> decided to annihilate and slaughter all the nations. So... For whatever reason, it's not in our reading to read that, but that's just a bonus reading on the side. Okay. And uh, hi, everybody. We are recording this um, late at night. Everyone's sleeping. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, it won't be too much yawning on either one of our parts. And my brilliant wife today, ladies and gentlemen, celebrate with me the culmination of years of study, the culmination of faithful living to the call that God placed upon her. Today, the bride has passed her boards, and that means Dr. Alexander can practice mental health care in Texas. Boom. Well, I don't have my license yet, but I passed my... my Boards. The boards is it. It's the everything. P-M-H-N-P-B-C. How many acronyms can we use? We've got so much alphabet soup going on. We are going to have a half price sale. Anyway, it's it exciting. It was hard. And usually, you know, you I try to like go slow and <clears throat> I try to go through them. By, by the time I was done, I was so tired and hungry that I, I, I looked through all the ones I had flagged briefly and I was like, you know what? I did my best and I put finish and it made me say like 10 times, are you sure? Are you sure? You have questions that are flagged. Are you sure? Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. Are you sure? Oh, you're sure? if you really mean it, click finish. It was like a bunch of times. That's and I was good. like, thank you for making me extremely paranoid. <laughs> and then it said I had to wait for, you know, it said your results will come within the hour. And I was like, oh, all right. And then as I was closing the app, it said pass. And, and- it was like, I was supposed to get an email, and I was yeah. like, I didn't get an email. This is on my board. So I went to my email, and it immediately it said, congratulations. So exciting, guys. I'm so proud of her. The funny thing is she, I am actually sitting on the front porch recording a reel today uh, with the Huxtables of the Cosby Show, and um, posted that. It's funny. Anyway, and the door shuts. I'm not thinking anything of it, and I come back in because I'm done. She's rushing into the dining room. She was set up in the bedroom to to do this test because she's actually being proctored like online, yeah, yeah, remotely from the Philippines or somewhere. somewhere. I think that's where it was. 
And so I'm like, what's going on? And this little person's in the screen saying, what's he doing in there? And I'm like, what the heck's going on? I'm getting kicked out of the house. We had to clear off the tables, like 911. And she gets on the table and I get shoved out the door for the next three hours. Two hours. Three hours. Anyway. Anyway. So it's, it was, she, she passed it so excited. Thank you for those of you who are in the know and we're praying. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And, and thank you. And he was so sweet. He was like, whoa, like super excited. I was still just kind of like dazed. I was so hungry because oh, yeah. you can't drink or eat or anything. And I was too nervous nope. before right. it to eat. So I was anyway. And so then we go to get some food and he was like, oh, it's a good day my bride and I was like oh my gosh but she was very sweet she's like you should celebrate that's right we got so. free tea anyway yeah so very good I'm day like, very really good done day. I'm done done did you done so we'll start our patreon page with um counseling uh live and online oh my goodness no marriage counseling okay. no so tonight okay. we're gonna read Isaiah <clears throat> okay 35 1 to 37 13 correct and Luke 12 22 to 59 and finish off with some job job 8 11 through 22 it's gonna be a good read yeah and let's give it a prayer okay our Lord God we are grateful for your word and for how it is transforming our marriage, our lives, everything that is um, in our circles, Lord. Your word is true. Thank you for helping us to see your plan uh, as we read every day. It's so beautiful to be part of, um, part of this world with you in our lives. And we pray as we read this, others would read along with us and their hearts would be made hungry for more of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, y'all, I'm going to try to get through Isaiah, as long as my computer doesn't decide to flip again. Um, reading the Bible on faithlife.com, the Lexham English Bible, and my bride with her net study Bible. All right, here we go. Isaiah 35.1. Wilderness and dry land shall be glad, and desert shall rejoice, and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly, and it shall rejoice indeed with rejoicing and exulting. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. Those, uh, they are the ones who shall see the glory of Yahweh, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make the staggering knees firm. Say to those who are hasty of heart, be strong. You must not fear. Look, your God will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He is the one who will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be opened. And the lame shall leap like the deer, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing for joy. And water shall break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. And the parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. Her resting place is in a settlement of jackals. The grass shall become like reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and a way and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not travel through it, for it is for them, I'm sorry, but it is for them he who walks on the way, and fools shall not wander about. No lion shall be there, and no ferocious wild beast shall go up it. 
It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of Yahweh shall return, and they shall come to Zion with rejoicing. And everlasting joy shall be on their head. Joy and gladness shall overtake them, and sorrow and sighing shall flee. So this is like Millennial Kingdom stuff. Oh, I love Millennial Kingdom stuff in Isaiah. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Oh, let's let's take a look here on my notes real quick, real quick, real quick. Um, 35. Sorry, guys. My note here says, The undoing of creation through judgment in Isaiah 34 is reversed. A rejuvenation and renewal of the created under heralds. The return of the righteous remnant to Zion. The, um, verse 2, the, this verse, that's where the crocus is. This verse... Uh, references the lush, fertile regions on the edge of Israel and Judah's territory. The image directly contrasts the withering away of Lebanon, Carmel, and Sharon in Isaiah 33.9. Uh, the glory of Yahweh means the coming of the glory of, Yahweh, of God causes this transformation of the wilderness. And then, um, again, he's reversing all of the destruction prior to this, uh, this chapter. Shall be opened, 35.5, symbolizes the coming of God's salvation. Um, it's an allusion to Jesus as well, because the blind shall see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the mute sing. This is that coming. Streams in the desert, a reversal of what happened to Edom. Uh, a little bit more down here. 35.8, about the highway. In keeping with the imagery that reverses the chaos and the destruction before the highways were laid to waste. The unclean shall not travel it. The idea of a righteous remnant that returns to Zion is implied by the designation of this highway as sacred, the way of holiness. Those who are ritually unclean cannot travel along this route. The imagery gives hope to those suffering under the threat of exile in Isaiah's day. Its ultimate fulfillment points to the future state of Zion under the Messiah's rule, where all who inhabit Zion are called holy. So there you go, babe. You nailed it, you nailed it, you nailed it. All right, 36.1. And this happened in the 14th year of King Hezekiah. Sennacherib, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, went up against all the fortified cities of Judah, and he captured them. So now Assyria has come down and done some damage. And the king of Assyria sent Reb Reb Shekeh from Lachish to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah with a large army, and he stood by the conduit of the upper pool and on the highway of the field of the washer. And Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, or Hilkiah, who was in charge of the palace, they came out to him, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the reminder. That's his job. He's the reminder. And Reb Shekah said to them, now say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what is this confidence in which you trust? I said, only a word of lips. War has power and a plan. Now in whom do you trust that you have rebelled against me? Look, you trust in the staff of this broken reed on Egypt, which if a man leans on it, goes into his hand and bores through it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all those who trust in him. And if you say to me, we trust in Yahweh our God, was it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed? And he said to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall bow down in the presence of this altar. 
And now please make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses. That is, if you're able to put riders for yourself on them. But how can you drive back one governor among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? And now, was it without Yahweh that I've come up against this land to destroy it? Yahweh said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. And Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we can understand it. And you must not speak to us in Judean in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your masters and you? Was it not for the people who sit on the wall to eat their dung and drink their urine with you? Gross. I'm so confused. <clears throat> well, let's pause there and take a look at the note. Dip, dip, do, dip, do. Let's see here. Verse 12 just simply says, with you. The Assyrian official asserts primitive equality of all people. Everyone has right to hear about their impending suffering under Assyrian siege. I'm sorry, they don't make it clear why they are drinking urine and eating poop. I'm trying to see if... Sorry about that. has anything. Anything? Anything at all? Um, Aramaic was the diplomatic language so here it says of in the, the Assyrian Empire. Okay. I want to clear here. It says in the Mesoretic Hebrew text, Kathib, the reading tradition has feet water. So it's not urine, but it's the water left over from washing feet. So it's dirt and dirty water. You know, basically grossness. Um. So on one note, the chief advisor alludes to the horrible reality of siege warfare when the starving people in the besieged city mm, would mm-hmm. resort to eating and drinking anything to stay alive. That makes sense. That makes sense. Okay. All right. Verse 13. Then Rabshakeh, Rabshakeh, I'm never going to get it right, guys, stood and called in a great voice in Judean and said, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Syria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. And do not let Hezekiah make you rely on Yahweh, saying, surely Yahweh will deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. You must not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make a blessing with me. Come out to me, and each one will eat from his vine and from his fig tree, and drink water from his cistern. Until I come and take you to a land like your land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, lest Hezekiah mislead you, saying, Yahweh will save us. Did the gods of the nations each save his land from the land uh, from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharim? Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who are there among all the gods of these countries who have saved their land from my hand, that Yahweh should save Jerusalem from my hand? But they were silent and did not answer him a word, for the command of the king was, You must not answer him. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, who was over the palace, Shebna the secretary, and Joah the son of Asaph, the reminder, Come to Hezekiah with torn garments and told him the words of Rabshakeh. Uh, chapter 37. And this happened 
When King Hezekiah heard, he tore his garments, covered himself in sackcloth, and entered the temple of Yahweh. And he sent Eliakim, who was in charge of the palace, and Shebna, the secretary, and the elders of the priests covered with sackcloth to Isaiah, son of Amos, the prophet. And they said to him, Thus said Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, rebuke, and disgrace. For children have come to the cervical opening, and there is no strength to give birth. Maybe Yahweh, your God, heard the words of Rabshakeh, whom the the king of Syria, his master, has sent to taunt the living God. And he will rebuke the words that Yahweh, your God, hears. And you will lift up a prayer for the benefit of the remnant that is found. When the servants of King Hezekiah come to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, You must say this to your master. Thus says Yahweh, You must not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Look, I am about to put a spirit on him, so that he shall hear a rumor, and he shall return to his land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his land. And Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that he had left from Lachish. Now he heard concerning uh, Terhaka, the king of Cush, saying, He has set out to fight against you. When he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, You shall say this to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust in him, deceive you by saying, Jerusalem will not be given into the land of the king of Assyria. Oh, to the hand of the king of Assyria. Look, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands to destroy them, and you shall you be delivered. Did the gods of the nations that my predecessors destroyed deliver them? Gozen, Haran, Rezfav, and the sons of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sarah-Varim, Hina or Iva? Iva? Okay. That's it. Just verse 13. Hmm. That's, a, that's a mouthful. Yeah. Let's not dive too deep for the sake of the length of it, but again, we're talking about some overlap in 36 between uh, Messiah coming the first time, announcing all the healing, Messiah's return the second time, saving the remnant and being on earth. And then 37, um, well, 36, I've got a note on that real quick, just one note. Uh, where did it go? Here it is. Um, while most of the book of Isaiah is poetic, the narratives of Isaiah 6 through 8 and 36 through 39 provide a historical setting for two major crises that form the background of Isaiah's message. This narrative focuses on the Assyrian crisis faced by King Hezekiah of Judah around 701 BC. These chapters cover the same events as 2 Kings 18, 13 through 2019. The overlap suggests the two books may have common authorship or a common source. Other biblical passages give Isaiah a role in the writing the court histories of Uzziah and Hezekiah. Okay, so this is not prophetic as much as it is historic. Historic account. Yeah, and then 37's note real quick. Um, verses 1 through 38. We only went through 1 through 13. 
It is a parallel of 2 Kings 19, 1 through 37. And um, Hezekiah seeks Isaiah's counsel and then receives an intimidating letter from an Assyrian official echoing the threats of his speeches from chapter 36. There you go. That's what we're reading, which basically an echo. All right, boys and girls, Keith, you better be on this. You need to turn to Luke chapter 12, verse 22. Luke 12, verse 22 through verse 59. Dr. Bride, would you kindly take over? So you should have read this yesterday about not worrying <laughs> as I'm stressing about my test. Okay, exhortation not to worry. Then Jesus says, said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. <clears throat> For there is more to life than food, and more to the body than clothing. Consider the ravens. They, they do not sow, sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add an hour to his life? She's trying to uh, separate the pages. Or as, as Virgil and Daryl, our new best friends, would say. Turn in pages. Okay. So if you cannot do such a very little thing as this, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the flowers grow. They do not work or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory was clothed like one of these. And if this is how God clothes the wild grass, which is here today and tomorrow is tossed into the fire to heat the oven, how much more will he clothe you, you people of little faith? So do not be overly concerned about what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not worry about such things. For all the nations of the world pursue these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, pursue his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father is well pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide yourselves purses that do not wear out, a treasure in heaven that never decreases, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Call to faithful stewardship. Get dressed for service and keep your lamps burning. Be like people waiting for their master to come back from the wedding celebration, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. Blessed are those slaves whom their master finds alert when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve. Have them take their place at the table and will come and wait on them. Even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night and finds them alert, blessed are those slaves. But understand this, if the owner of the house had not known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You must also be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Then Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for everyone? The Lord replied, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom the master put in charge of his household servants? to give them their allowance of food at the proper time. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds at work when he returns. I tell you the truth, the master will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave should say to himself, my master is delayed in returning and begins to beat the other slaves, both men and women, and to eat, drink, and get drunk, then the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not foresee and will cut him in two and assign him a place with the unfaithful. That servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or do what the master asked will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know his master's will and did things worthy of punishment will receive a light beating. For everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And for the one 
and from the one who has been entrusted with much, even more will be asked. I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is finished. Do you think I have come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on there will be five in one household divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Jesus also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a rainstorm is coming, and it does. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there, there will be scorching heat, and there is. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but how can you not know how to interpret the present time? And why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? Are you going to, with your accuser before the magistrate? Make an effort to settle down with him on the way so that he will not drag you before the judge. And the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the very last cent. Mm. So much in there. Yeah. I think the part that stuck out to me is where he said, do you think I've come to bring peace? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we, like, we've talked a lot about how... Verse 49, is that the part you're looking um, at? Yeah. How yeah. we pick and choose what we want to to look at from the Bible and from what Jesus said. Yeah. And we make Jesus, like, this very, like, soft, sweet... Blue-eyed European. Person who would never ask you to, like, change your life. He just loves you mm-hmm. just for who you are because you're so awesome. Jesus He's is not love. saying that. No, it's rather forceful. Yeah. I've come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it had been kindled already. Oh my gosh. So that says online, fiery image is often used as a symbol of judgment, divine judgment. Jesus suggests that there already are elements of judgment associated with his mission. Um... And in the next verse, talks about baptism. It's not his water baptism. He's referring to his impending death, that he will die and go into the earth and come back out of the earth. You know, like a baptism symbol. So that is a big deal. I, you know, that was, I'm, I'm surprised you picked that one a little bit. But in verse 53, right, or 52 even, I tell you, from now on, there will be five in one household, and there will be three against two or two against three. Verse 53, they'll be divided father against son, son, father. You, you guys know that. And the purpose of that or the cause of that is not like disobedience, man. This is about like go back to Micah 7, 6. His message, it says, for a son treats a father with contempt in Micah. Uh, a daughter rises up against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her, father, her mother-in-law. The enemies of a man are the men in his own house. We are looking at what happens when the gospel of Jesus Christ enters a home. It is instantly divisive. Yeah. And that is, that catches people off guard. Why doesn't everybody want to get saved when, you know, somebody in the home gets saved and comes in? That is always, always divisive at first. Now, you know, God's grace will save the household. 
you know, that's up to God doing his thing. Um, because there are plenty of houses that, even marriages, where the wife or the husband gets saved, but the other spouse does not. And that creates a division. So this is that part where Jesus fulfills that. Not everyone's going to want to jump on that bandwagon with you. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't stop Jesus from doing his mission with us. Um, the other thing I wanted to touch on real quick, I was actually, um, my seniors were going over our finances in our finance class. And we, um, I showed them a video uh, with Crown Financial Ministries. We're actually working with the Dave Ramsey um, stuff for students. Um, it's kind of like Financial Peace University, but for kids. But the one thing that I'm not liking with our particular curriculum that we use with Dave Ramsey, and Dave Ramsey's a great guy, but there's no scripture in this particular cur- curriculum we're using. So I dabble back over to Crown Financial Ministries because I'm familiar with them. And this is exactly what we were talking about for the kids was anxiety, God's provision, and um, how God will provide for you if you are faithful to God in the little of the finances he's given you. If you don't focus on becoming wealthy, but you focus on becoming faithful, that's the difference. That's where God moves on our behalf. And I love that, that we get to, to get to see this in the first part of Luke 12, um, where it says anxiety. It's about anxiety over finances. Do I have enough to survive? Do I have enough for this? Do I have enough for that? And Jesus is saying, you know, consider the lilies. They don't, they don't toil. They don't spin. They don't have any anxiety. And they're more dressed than anything Solomon produced. Mm-hmm. But just to, just to encourage those who are listening, are anxious about their finances, um, we are definitely not rich people, uh, but God has been faithful in, in, in providing for our needs. And we're grateful for that. And God is faithful to provide your needs. And when you are faithful in that little thing, he'll increase it. He'll increase it every time because that's his job. This is not a prosperity gospel. This is just the faithfulness of stewardship. So I just want to encourage those who are listening, be faithful in the stewardship of where you're at and, and what God is providing because that reflects God's goodness to those who are looking at you who are not saved. Mm-hmm. So that's all I want to say about that. Anything you want to add? No. Nope. Okay. Um, Job, we're going to end our reading with Job. And we are looking at Job 8, 11 through 22. 11 through 22. Uh, really quick, I've got a, a blurb here. It says, Bildad uses three illustrations from nature to depict the fate of the ungodly. Do you think he's calling Job ungodly in this? Nah. Nah, they're nice. He presents his instruction as ancestral wisdom, which often uses analogies from nature. First, the godless person is like papyrus, which quickly grows to great heights. It's kind of like bamboo. Under the right conditions, however, it depends on a swampy water supply and dies if the conditions change. So also the godless will perish. Second, the godless man is confident in the wrong things, like a man leaning against a spider web. Trusting in such fragility is a disaster. Finally, the godless person is like a plant in rocky soil, which his shallow roots, rallow shoots, and leaves no trace when it's easily uprooted. Let's read. 
Can papyrus grow tall where there's no marsh? Papyrus? 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 It's paper plants. Can papyrus, papyrus, grow tall where there is not a marsh? Will reeds flourish without water? While it is in its flower and it is not plucked, yet it withers before all grass. So are the paths of all who forget God. And the hope of the godless will perish, whose confidence is cut off and whose trust is a spider's house. He will lean himself, and I just lost it. Oh my gosh. He leans against his house, but it does not hold up. He takes hold of it, but it does not stand. He is a well-watered plant in the sun. Its shoots spread all over its garden. It wraps its roots around a heap of stones, and it looks for a place among stones. If he destroys him from his place, then it deceives him, saying, I have never seen you. Look, this is the joy of his way, and from dust gathers, uh, dust others will spring up. Look, God will not reject the blameless, and he will not uphold the hand of evildoers. Yet he will fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with a shout of joy. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no more. I don't really get what his point is because he's not actually saying that Job is wicked, right? No, but he's just talking about wickedness in general, wicked is people in general. Is he kind of just ignoring Job's situation, though? Mm, that's a good question, is he? It kind of feels um, like it, isn't it? Like, if I was going through what Job is going through, I'd be like, what's your point, man? Is he being passive-aggressive and just kind of... Do I have a note on it? Hit it. Let's hear it. About papyrus plant growing to... I don't know if it's the same thing. H.H. Um, H. Rowley observes the use of the words for plants that grow in Egypt and suspects that Bildad either knew Egypt or knew that much wisdom, that much wisdom came from Egypt. The first word refers to papyrus, which grows to a height of six feet. So the verb means to grow tall, to grow high. The second word refers to the reed grass that grows on the banks of the river. That doesn't really tell us. No, but the overall, I'm just going back on some of these earlier notes from our last reading. And Bildad is not really slamming Job, like um, his former friend was, his previous friend rather was, um, but he is talking more about God and uh, like verse six, Job about pure and upright. Job has already been described in similar terms. Unlike Eliphaz, Bildad doubts Job's righteousness. Uh, he will restore your righteousness abode. Um, says according to Bildad's understanding of divine retribution, God will restore Job if he pleads for mercy and is pure and upright. So the question that we're asking is, what is Bildad talking about here? And it kind of seems that Job, if you repent, God's going to restore you. And this is what God does to the ungodly and to the godly. Right? So it says here, for we are of yesterday. We do not know for our days on earth are a shadow. Will they themselves not teach you and tell you and utter words from their heart? Can papyrus grow tall where there's no marsh? Will reeds flourish without water? I think he's kind of accusing Job of being papyrus. And and that you're you're not growing him. This is like, you know, these are wicked people. Is that you, Job? Are you one of these people because all this is happening to you? It just, it just seems like a passive-aggressive attempt to me. Again, could be wrong. Just kind of comes off of it. But I do like this truth. This truth. Where did it go? Here it is. Verse. Mm, 
I like it. Verse 20, look, God will not reject the blameless and he will not uphold the hand of evildoers. Yet he will fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with a shout of joy. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame and the tent of the wicked will be no more. And I really do like that encouragement in the word of God. Because uh, our note here says, Bildad holds to his mistaken beliefs about God's justice and Job's status before God. He asserts that if Job is blameless, God will restore him. However, God described Job as blameless before Job's suffering. So Bildad's understanding of God's righteousness, I think, is spot on, but he's labeling Job as unrighteous. That's not the part that's cool about this verse. But I do like where it says God will not reject the blameless and he will not uphold the hand of the evildoer. So those who would say, why doesn't God do something about evil? This is where I would point them and say, listen, God's not on the side of those who are doing evil. He's on the side of those who are blameless, meaning those who have been redeemed. That's the only way we're blameless, right? Is in Christ. So we're blameless, not because of our deeds per se, but because of the blood of Christ. So, Let's thank God that he fills your mouth with laughter because you have a great laugh and your lips with a shout of joy because you were shouting today. You were. And I am so grateful. So that's our reading. Um, I want to just, I want to point one thing. Can I give a shout out to Walker? Yeah. Y'all, today is Friday, the, uh, the 30th of September. Goodbye, September. Hello, October. But today, Zach Williams dropped uh, his album, but his single, Jesus's Fault, is actually written by Walker Hayes, fancy like Applebee's on a date night, Walker Hayes. But the song is his testimony. I've listened to it a bunch of times today, and I've been weeping over this song. I don't know why the Holy Spirit just wickened my heart. I mean, I really like it, but it didn't make me cry. There was something in the message that resonated with me. And uh, so men listening, women share it with your men. Men listen to this song. It's Jesus's fault. I think, I think this resonates more with men than women. There's language in this. There's vi- there's visuals in this. That we get guys. We really get it. I want to encourage you. I might even put a link up in our show notes. Um, but give this shot to this song. Listen to it. And remember that, man. This is, if you, it says, if, um, if you miss the man I used to be, it's Jesus' fault. I love that line. It's beautiful. I just love how much it got to you. It really Crazy. did, man. It really did. All right, y'all. We love you. Thank you so much. I'm Mark. I'm the guy. I'm Andrea on the bride. We just got done reading the Bible. Give us a shout out at andreaandmarka at gmail.com. That's Andrea. And the letter N. And Mark. The letter A. At gmail.com. It's like we had practiced that one. We've just been doing it so much, you know. Say good night. Good night, y'all.